Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskan. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. It's Tuesday, 20th of September on The Michael Reed Show this morning. Publicans throughout the region are feeling the squeeze and asking the government to throw them a lifeline to stay afloat in the coming months. Councillors in Louth voted against changing the local property tax rate next year despite the Chief Executive of Louth County Council warning that the local authority is facing an extra 3.8 million euro in costs in next year's budget. So, how are we going to make up the shortfall? And why are those living outside the capital less likely to have a pension? These stories and more in the next two hours with myself, Alan Cantwell, standing in for Michael until next Friday. Mental health reform has called on the government to prepare for a surge in demand for mental health services associated with the cost of living crisis. The National Coalition for Mental Health, which represents 81 organisations working across the voluntary and community sector, said that additional funding is urgently needed in Budget 2023 to mitigate the mental health impact of the cost of living crisis. Joining us this morning is Roisin Clark, Interim CEO of Mental Health Reform. Roisin, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Can I just put a to you, I mean, your words, not mine. We are fast approaching a national mental health emergency. Are you being over dramatic with that particular statement? No, I don't believe we are, Alan, and thank you very much for, for having me on today. Um, we are one week ahead of Budget 2023. And mental health reform will be in Leinster House today and we'll be speaking to public representatives to highlight the need for increased funding for mental health supports right across Ireland. And you, just you mentioned um, there in the lead in, you know, there was um, some talk around budget 2023. And I think it's fair to say that there's been significant attention on the current cost of living crisis and the likelihood of a recession. But so far, we have seen very little recognition of the risk that this poses to the nation's mental health. Okay, well, talk to me a little bit about that mental health emergency and how you would anticipate it will manifest itself if you don't get what you want from government in the budget. 
Absolutely. And we know from previous experience that financial struggles and debt are the key contributing factors to suicide and self-harm. And we're all on a steady diet, I think it's fair to say, of dire forecasts and news reports on the the rising cost of living, potential energy shortages and increasing inflation. We can't ignore the human cost of this and its impact on mental health. I mean, as you said, we are a coalition. We have 81 member organisations and one of our member organisations, AWARE, has reported an increase in callers whose mental health has been impacted by the cost of living crisis. Another member, Bernardo's, has said that almost two-thirds of parents are worrying regularly about being able to provide their children with daily essentials such as food and heat and electricity. And just recently, youth mental health charity Jigsaw has reported demand for their online Live chat services has doubled in just the past year. And I think that's probably one of the more worrying aspects of this. And I saw that report yesterday from Jigsaw, who essentially deal with with younger people, younger adults, and the level of services that are required from them. They just can't cope with it. And that is, is very worrying, particularly for the younger cohort. Absolutely it is. And if you're experiencing a mental health challenge or difficulty, you can't afford to wait. If you reach out for help, you have to be able to access it there and then. People can't wait. Young people can't wait six months when they reach out for help. It's not something that we can countenance, I don't think, any further. Okay, Roshan, can I ask you to draw if there are any parallels between what is happening now and what happened during the last financial crash, the recession, which had a phenomenal impact on people. And I think what was stark about that and its consequences was the suicide rate, particularly amongst males as a result of the, of that crash. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, during the previous recession in Ireland, there was actually a 57, 57% increase in male suicide rates and a 22% increase in female self-harm rates. So we, we know this. We have this information. Government has to seize the opportunity to learn from the past and avoid repeating history. But rates of mental health difficulties in Ireland are already high. And a recent study just this year shows that over 40% of the population experience a mental health difficulty. And unfortunately, one in 10 people report a history of attempted suicide. We need to draw attention to the fact that there is a grave risk that the cost of living crisis will plunge many more people into a state of absolute hopelessness and psychological distress. Well, let's talk about figures here and perhaps this will focus the minds of people who are Mm. not really privy to understanding the level of spend from government. We're at about 5.5% of the national health budget. How does Mm -hmm. that compare with European counterparts? It doesn't compare terribly well. Um, France, for example, spends over 14% of its health budget on mental health services. Our nearest neighbour, the UK, spends 15%. But just for a national reference for ourselves, our um, National Policy of Vision for Change recommends 8%, and that was to be in place by 2016, Alan. Salon Care recommends at least 10% by 2017. So we're calling for an investment, a steady investment up to 10% of the total health budget by 2024. So if we do a cost-benefit analysis on this and take into consideration the number of people who require intervention in some shape or form, Mm. 
it's it's over 10,000 a year that it's costing the exchequer and it doesn't really make sense that we're not putting the investment in to try and reduce that figure per annum per individual. Absolutely no and there is a cost to not addressing mental health difficulties economically speaking. Um and that goes in, into the billions uh, to to the economy for not for not making the necessary investment to provide people the access to the care and supports and the services that they need. Now, you recommend an investment of in around €100 million. It's a a sizable figure, but in the context of the problem, you would consider it to be a reasonable figure. But you have to recognise as well that with so many people with their hand out looking for money and lobbying the Minister for Finance, it's, it's quite an ask. Alan, it's in in the context of things. I, I don't know that I would agree that it is quite an ask. We're looking for an additional hundred million. Twenty-five million of that is for the maintenance of existing services, and seventy-five million is for the development of services to address unmet need. But I should point out that those figures are couched in resourcing our um, sharing division, which is our national policy implementation plan. So these these figures are really to to ensure that government holds true on the implementation plan that it has put in place itself and the promises for service development that government has made. So where do you see the real difficult points and the areas that need immediate intervention to try and and cope with the numbers? What needs to be put in play immediately? We, we need the additional funding to initially address the waiting lists. As of May 2022, there were 4,294 children and young people on the waiting lists for CAMS, the Child and Adolescent yeah. Mental Health Services. And that's almost a 60% increase since 2020. So, you know... that. But, the, but that will require that will benefit. require getting counsellors or individuals with an expertise that's able to cope with the difficulties being faced by these individuals. That takes time. I presume you can't just pull these people off the street or bring them no, in. Alan, you bring can, them in, and, and yeah. it costs money. And we have a difficulty recruiting in the health sector because of that very issue of the cost and people not prepared to accept what's being offered. But Alan, nevertheless. We, if we in, invest in these services, we, we will be able to work across, across the recruitment issues. And yes, I acknowledge there are recruitment issues in the HSE, but that should not be to the, def- the deficit of providing services to children, young people and adults who need them. We also need to see more significant investment in the voluntary and community sector, um, which services are, are, as you know, experiencing a drastic increase in demand. So we need to see some long-term multi-annual funding, as was promised in the government's five-year strategy, to enable the, the voluntary and community sector to continue providing those vital services that will also help people to have the immediate access to the support that they need. Leaving aside your requirement for financial intervention, what is your view on how the service operates at the moment? Does that need to be looked at and audited and perhaps be streamlined or enhanced? Or, or do you have a view on how the service operates? 
We do. And there is always ongoing work around the efficiencies in the service and how the service operates. But mental health reform has called for the reinstatement of a national lead for mental health in the HSE because we believe that that will be essential essential in ensuring that the proper oversight and leadership to oversee these improvements of services across the country would be a huge benefit at this stage. So if we find ourselves in a position where the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, when he gets to his feet Mm -hmm. next week, decides only to give you, at best, we'll say, a third, perhaps, or a quarter of what you're looking for. In the short term, what will the consequences of that decision for the government be? I think that we could be facing into even greater challenges. As I said, 40% of people in this country have experienced a mental health difficulty or challenge. I think we cannot ignore that figure. I strongly feel if the government does not address the shortage of funding for mental health services all around Ireland, that unfortunately, Alan, we could be speaking again in the future and the percentages could be even higher. And I don't think that that's something that we want to be looking to at all. Can I ask you um, just perhaps to look at uh, the younger cohort when it comes to mental Mm. health problems in this country, not just Mm. this country, we've seen it globally where there has been a significant increase. Is it due to a number of factors are younger people less resilient? What is it? Are they being influenced by social media or, or, or can we pinpoint an actual cause in the rise of anxiety, depression and everything else that goes with mental health issues? What's the reasoning? I think if we could pinpoint an actual cause, we'd be in a very good place. And I don't think there's ever any one issue. It's, it's Alan, it will be a, a, a compounding of various mm. different issues. But, but none, none, nonetheless, you recognise that it is, it has really gone off the scale in recent years, in the past gone decade. Off the scale in recent years, but we, I think we have to recognise that there's a generation out there who have come through such a formative time in their lives in, in the midst of the pandemic. And we, we yet don't know what the long-term implications of that are going to be. So I think I think perhaps for older generations, it might be a little bit difficult to 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 relate to that because we haven't experienced it. But it's been so difficult for for the generation of children and young people who have missed out on major milestones in their life, who have missed out on important periods in their education and socialisation. They were isolated. They were learning from home. They couldn't see their friends. I, I, I don't think those of us who haven't experienced it at that formative time in our lives can really understand it fully. And I, I think it's till now we, we will no, not know the full impacts of that on people. And I think I think that it would be I think it would be folly um, for us to think that there is any one particular issue, but that's um, really impactful and we need to bear that in mind and we have to be prepared to offer support to children and young people when they need it. It's it's really crucial. It's unknown, uncharted territory, if you will, um, when we think about perhaps the longer term impacts on the generation of people who have experienced the, the unique challenges um, that we've had in the last couple of years. And, and then I suppose, Alan, 
we move out of that and, and into the bombardment of information around the cost of living and around the potential challenges of the winter. And people are struggling and young people and children are struggling because they're not immune to this either. And it's it's in their, their homes and it's in their schools. And um, I, I think that we have to recognise that it's it's been moving really, I suppose, to one exceptional circumstance to another. And people need to they need to be minded and they need to be able to 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 reach out and to know they can reach out and know that they'll be met with support when they do so very briefly before i go to a break have you got any indication from the minister for health or any public representative that your requirements will be met or have they fobbed you off with the usual replies we haven't been fobbed off, but I might let you know after Leinster House today, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wish you luck today, Roisin Clark, Interim CEO of Mental Health Reform. Thank, Thank you for Alan. joining us. I, I need to say before I go, and I realise we've been speaking about some rather challenging issues, so I just would like to point out um, for anybody listening, if you are experiencing any difficulties, please, you can call our member organisation, the Samaritans, at 116123, and that's a free helpline. It's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week and also our other member Pieta have a 24 hour crisis helpline and that's a free phone number and it's 1-800-247-247 and you can text if you prefer help, H-E-L-P 251444 and um, and Alan just before I let you go if anybody listening today would like to support our campaign please if you could visit our website it's mentalhealthreform.ie and we, we've um, uh, uplift campaign so you can just okay. use that function to send an email to your TD or your public representative to support our campaign it takes two minutes and it will really make a big difference Very good Roisin thank you for joining us this morning Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. I want to return to the um, story around the future of the emergency department and the downgrading of Navan Hospital. You are aware that there was a a march in Kells on Friday which had a considerable turnout and I think there's probably, well, on the basis of the information that we're getting here and the people we've interviewed, there seems to be a view that perhaps the fight may be lost. It hasn't been confirmed. We're still waiting to hear back from the Minister for Health on this matter, despite the fact, and I think we should put this on the record, that we here at LMFM on more than one of okay, on more than one occasion have asked him to come on air to answer some of the questions that we have been asking, but unfortunately not getting answers to. So just to put that on the record. But joining us um, this morning is Fianna Fáil Senator um, Shane Cassells. Uh, Senator, good morning to you. You were at that protest on Friday. Were you concerned that some of your government colleagues and party colleagues weren't at it. Uh, good morning, Alan, and you're 100% right. I was I was there on Friday uh, and I was proud to march on Friday, uh, as I've always done. But some of your um, party I, colleagues weren't proud to march, to fly the well, flag. I'm, I'm extremely proud to, to march in that campaign, Alan, because I was reared across the road from the hospital, as people know, uh, on Boring Keel and Navin. And so the people in Navin know uh, my commitment uh, to that facility in the town and to the wider northeast region as well. Uh, and I'm proud to be part of this campaign for well over a decade. Um, the, the premise of the question at the outset where you talked about, you know, this fight being lost, I, I don't think it's lost. 
anything but. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm sorry I, I, for I, cutting across you, but I must press you on the initial question that I asked you, and that is in relation to the position adopted by government representatives, senior gover- government representatives in this region who were not there. What's your view on that? I can't. I can't answer. For no, but you must have there. a view. I mean, and, come on. You were the you were there saying that you're flying the flag, and nobody's mm-hmm. questioning that. But surely you would expect local representatives at a senior level to also support the retention of services at Navin. You must have a view on the position they're taking. Yeah, and I, and I think that they are in the in the manner and they're doing their business um, at the meetings that we're having. I think they should also be there to support the campaign because I think the campaign is a campaign of the people. I don't think it's a political campaign. I think it's a campaign of the people to show their support. And I think we all should be there in unison. Um, but that's for other people to answer. I'm there very much so on on uh, the stage with this campaign, making sure that we're articulating our message. And on Friday, it was outside the offices of the HSE, because this is exactly where this battle is, with a misguided campaign by them uh, to try and reduce services in Navan, which okay. is not acceptable uh, to the people in Navan or Mead. OK, we, we've been over that argument, but I, I want to press you as well on the position adopted by the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, who is not engaging with the people of this region publicly on this radio station, answering questions that need to be answered. Why? What's your view on his position on it? Yeah, I, th- I think that's the key word that you've used there, Alan, publicly. I mean, he, he very much is engaging because this facility would have been gone this time last year only for Stephen Donnelly. He takes a lot of flack at a particular meeting and people like to try and see him as... But the, look, at that's his job. I mean, he has to answer questions and he's not answering them here. I want to finish that point. So this time last year, had the HSE and the plan that they wanted to implement been successful, it would have been gone. But he intervened and he said, no, you're not doing that. It happened again at the start of this year. Once again, he said, no, it happened before the start of the summer. So he has intervened at three different occasions over the last 12 months to stop this. And I think that's very important to put that on the record because people like to see him as the bogeyman in the room. Anything but the HSC would have actually done this. And imagine if they had got away with this this time last year. When you see the statistics emanating from the HSE's own emergency department task force report yesterday that shows that over 40,000 breaches of the 24-hour wait rule have been recorded by them themselves. Imagine the Armageddon we would have had had they got away with the plan that they wanted to implement this time last year in Navin when their own statistics and their own plans are showing their consistent failure to service the patients and the people that they are charged okay. with. And that's why you have a Minister for Health telling them, back down, do your job, you're given a budget, and do a better job for the people that you represent. Senator, there seems to be an increasing number of people who are of the view that this is perhaps a campaign that is lost, and the best we can do is get a seat at the table to discuss what the next step is to have a fit-for-purpose facility and service in the region. Is the campaign lost from your mind? Anything, anything but, Alan, and I, and I think we, would, we need to change that narrative as well in terms of um, a campaign being lost to a narrative around how we actually change the, um, the view of this facility for those in the HSE who seem welded to this idea of what they want to do. And I think it's very dangerous because... You obviously uh, and the show have had many senior consultants over the summer discussing it. And and words and phrases have been used along the lines of 
poorer outcomes, poorer medical outcomes, veering on to people will die. And, you know, Dr. Michael Power was interviewed on this show back in June, who is the, the lead in acute care, and was asked about that. And he, he said, well, you know, anecdotally, I've heard of, of incidents. That is a terrible terrible statement to make on Senator, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to have to, I want to stop you there to clarify one particular issue. Um, Last week, we received documentation under the Freedom of Information Act, which outlined very clearly in a letter that it was stated categorically that ultimately what will potentially happen is that patient or patients will lose their lives. That came from the hospital. Okay. And so when you listen then to Phil Nahay, the head of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation yesterday, Alan, and she talks about the fact that the system that they have in place at the moment of adding more people to already overcrowded A&Es will also lose, lead to poorer outcomes for patients. So their safer proposal to bring the people from Navin to an already overcrowded scenario, whether that be in Drogheda or in Dublin, and when you've got Phil Nahay saying, no, that's going to lead to the poorer outcomes that are also being spoken about. That if you're in a trolley, your care is not optimum. You're having your private information discussed in a corridor, potentially receiving bad news. It is, the phrase she used was completely inappropriate. So I think the system being proposed on one side is in no way better than what the, what the, what the medics are saying on the other side as well. And if they want to have an honest conversation, they need to do that in addressing the massive deficiencies that they are standing over, that they are standing over at this very moment in time. When we met with them in the Department of Health buildings uh, in the springtime, where they outlined uh, their um, plans to try and implement this, I asked them a series of questions. Because the policy that they're implementing is based on a, on a report that is now a decade old. And the county that we live in, and this whole region that we live in, is a very much changed one since that report. No other company would compile a business plan and say that it would last for a decade. It is outdated. And when we live in a county of 200,000 people, and that is growing, I look around the town now at the moment, there's around six different sites under construction where houses, over 1,000 homes under construction at the moment. That's over 10% of the national private build at the moment. They, and I asked them the question, have you any understanding of how planning regulations have changed in this country in the last 10 years and matching your medical future policy okay. to match them. They didn't understand. They didn't know because they live in a bubble. But quite frankly, okay, I Sandra, don't live in a bubble, so I have to make sure that that is represented. Sandra, there's one question that we have failed time and again to get an answer to, and perhaps you might be able to give us the answer to it. It's almost like the third secret of Fatima. When will that review be completed by the Minister for Health? He spoke about weeks. We're way beyond weeks at this stage. Well, quite frankly, I don't think that this review, if they're being honest, is, is, is as I, I described it last week, is going to be a fairy tale. Because if you see the report yesterday from the, their own task force, which shows the massive deficiencies within the system as is, how can any review, if you're trying to get what they want, a transfer of patients from Navin to Drogheda, is going to show a safer outcome? Maybe they're actually looking... Alan, at the fact that they can't produce a report that gets them the outcome that they want. Maybe that's what's causing the delay, because they know 
that if they're proposing something, it's going to be a fairy tale because the capacity that they're seeking isn't there at present. And maybe that's why it's taken so long. My gut feeling is that's exactly why it is. And maybe it'll be no harm if this time next year they're still scrambling with that because they're not able to come up with the answers. We must leave it there. Senator Shane Cassells, Fianna Fáil Senator, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. More than four in ten Irish adults plan fewer visits to pubs for the remainder of 2022 due to cost of living pressures, new research has shown. The data has prompted the Vintage Federation of Ireland CEO Paul Clancy to call for urgent and substantive energy supports for the pub trade in budget 2023. He says pubs cannot pass on increases to customers already under financial strain. And Paul Clancy, CEO of the Vintage Federation, joins us this morning. Paul, good morning. Thanks for joining us. I mean, this is a case, I suppose, of customers exercising fiscal prudence in an uncertain economic time. And in reality, it's the job of your members to make it attractive for customers to come in. So you've got to adopt a little bit of a carrot approach here. Yes, uh, look, we know that the, the, you know, the rates of inflation, the interest rates and the cost of energies are, you know, that's the reason why 40% of people are planning not to maybe visit as often as they will for the rest of the year, for the rest of the year. And publicans are obviously very concerned about that, about the uncertainty. Um, I mean, what we're really calling for is a reduction in our support on the energy costs that publicans are experiencing. They are going up 200 to 300% on last year. Um, so it's a very, very challenging time and an uncertain time, really. I think mm. that this really is a real concern um, for, for publicans at the moment. And uh, this is really worrying for them. So are you looking to be treated differently from every other business? Or are you happy to go along with what the Minister for Finance in Budget 2023 outlines next week? Well, look, we're waiting to see what the Minister is going to produce. We, we have met the Minister on numerous occasions to explain the situation that our members are under. Like, we're no difference to a lot of businesses as well, except that our footfall is dependent on people's disposable income. And when, people, when footfall stops, it put extra pressure on the publican's uh, profitability. So it's really important that, you know, when budget does come around and that's like this day week, it's hard to believe, um, you know, that we do get the substantial supports in, in the form of maybe something like commercial rates waiver, that type of payment that came in before, uh, energy support, something that can actually help publicans survive the very, very challenging time that's ahead of them, uh, particularly down to the energy costs. OK, Paul, you talked about profitability there and how it will impact that. Surely publicans have to absorb some of that themselves. Yes, and they have, in fairness, like if we look at uh, what publicans have been doing, they have been absorbing a lot of the costs themselves. Um, the, really, the real challenge is that they're not able to pass on these extraordinary high energy costs onto the customer because they're actually petrified that the footfall will stop and that they won't get people into the pubs because they'll just be too expensive. So what I think what, they're trying, what we're trying to do on behalf of our members is, you know, put a, a suite of package together, particularly on energy costs, that'll make the pub a viable option for people to go out and spend their hard-earned cash when things are going to tighten into the autumn and into the winter period. So what do you want? Something akin to the supports that were rolled out during COVID when pubs had to close, but they were, they were paid more or less uh, to, to, in order for them to be able to survive. Is that what you're looking for? Well, we're looking for uh, some form of direct payment that can hopefully counter some of the extraordinary costs that uh, publicans have experienced, particularly on energy. And that can be a form of direct payment, like a CRSS type payment, or it could be um, a direct payment on energy, like a grant. I heard something's been discussed there as well. What about a low interest loan? Where Where do you stand on that? 
Well, look, we're waiting to see uh, what what the minister is going to provide. I mean, you know, anything that can help the public at the end of the day, we're prepared to look at. And hopefully he will. He is aware of the challenges that are there, not just in our industry, but across all small businesses, in, in fairness. And I think he will hopefully put a package together that'll that'll help us survive uh, through that winter period, because we want to be here. Um, our members want to be here for the summer period because, you know, the pub is a very important part of the tourist attraction and uh, for not just for tourists abroad, but for staycations as well. And it is the hub of many communities as well around uh, rural Ireland. And we want to make sure that we can put them on a sustainable footing. Talk to me a little bit about what the ultimate outcome of publicans passing on this increase in energy to the customers in relation to the cost of a pint. What would you be paying for a pint if it were the case that those were passed on to the customer? Well, we haven't done that exercise as of yet, but I mean, currently... Well, I just say it in the context of the UK, because I think one publican over there was talking about the price of a pint going up to 16 or 17 pounds sterling. Are you talking about that level of increase? No, we're not. Look, we haven't discussed price increases. I mean, what we've discussed is we want to keep our prices down to absolute minimum. I mean, currently, you know, we're ranging from four sixty to five fifty in general for for the Guinness or a, a lager. Uh, is the cost. We not if you go into the city centre in Dublin, it's substantially more than that. But that's that's for another yes. day's conversation. That's another day's absolutely another day's uh, conversation. But look, what I think the ultimate objective here is to keep our cost to an absolute minimum. We do not want to pass on any costs that we are not absolutely essential onto the end consumer. Because at the end of the day, we want to encourage people to come into our premises, not deter them. And that's why we feel that if the if the uh, budget twenty three can really allay some of those fears, the un- uncertainty into the future for our, our members, um, that they'll be able to budget for those and they'll be able to stay open. Okay. Like pubs are closing at the minute, you know. Well, I want to talk to you about that, Paul, as a an overhang from COVID. How many um, members did you lose? Many pubs closed? Well, over COVID, we lost about 350 uh, pubs in rural Ireland. That's outside Dublin. And... Um, uh, yeah, and you know, year to date, we've lost about 97. Now, some of them will come back because they move out and they change hands and things like that. But over the period, uh, 350 were lost during that 22-month period. But since 2005, we've lost over 1,850 pubs, which is 20% of the total amount that we have today. So, look, But you accept that's business. It's the survival of the fittest when it comes to business. And we will see casualties and we'll see casualties again as a result of the cost of living crisis. Well, look, you will. Look, I mean, there is a natural, uh, I suppose, you, you're right. If you look at the, the migration patterns that have happened over the years. A lot of rural pubs have suffered for that, for that reason. You know, with that period I'm talking about, you're talking over the, the last recession of 2007, all the way up to 11 and 12. And like, there's no doubt that rural Ireland was really hit badly, as were many cities as well. Look, there will be pubs that we lose along the way, but I think what we're trying to do is put them back on a sustainable footing that we can reverse that curve. We're never going to go back to the numbers we had before. OK, Paul, just before I leave you, can you put a figure on what is required by your members from government at uh, at the budget in order to, to get through now, the next few months? Because we don't know where this is or when it's going to end. Well, look, we're looking to that whatever supports they put in, they can get us down to that 2019 energy level cost. That's really what our requirement is. 
and that they are put on a sustainable footing so that we have and that there is a commitment to the future as well that we can stay at those levels so that we can plan and we can put our business on a strong footing to be able to survive what is a very uncertain time for our members in autumn and winter. Very good. Paul Clancy, CEO of the Vintage Federation of Ireland, joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Concern has been raised about how a major incident at Tara Mines would be dealt with if planned changes at Navan Hospital were to go ahead. John Regan, Secretary of Meath, the District Council and Chairman of the Meath uh, Council of Trade Unions, says people recognise the changes coming with regard to the hospital and they all they want is a seat at the table on these particular discussions. And John joins us this morning. John, thank you for joining us. Um, so you accept, morning, it's go- you accept it's gone, do you? Not at all, uh, Alan. And in actual fact, uh, we will be fighting uh, the non-closure or downgrading of our a and in Navan. Uh, it is not going to be acceptable to the public. It showed last week when we had our, on Friday, when we had our rally in Kells at one o'clock. We had a huge turnout for that time of the day. And there is a lot of anger, as your uh, interviewers showed at that rally. Uh, People are not at all going to lie down and let this happen. Okay, Uh, going back to the point that a major incident at Tara Mines puts a question mark over how we would be able to deal with it. But, I mean, that that argument doesn't hold water. You know yourself that all local authorities have emergency plans. They're reviewed constantly and they're adapted in order to ensure that the correct response will be carried out. Yeah, that's right. But there, it's not just a major incident. That's a huge in, uh, incident that would occur that that kicks in. We're talking about day-to-day normal operations in the mine. Uh, there is a, a, an absolute requirement that any of the workers in there know that they have a fully functioning A&E on their doorstep and that they do not have to pass by it to go to another A&E services. Uh, their families need to know this as well. Workers go in there um, 365 days of the year. The operation in the mine is constantly going 24/7. Yeah. There is no let up here. There is no there there is no way we can accept as trade unions and as worker representatives that this uh, downgrading and attack on the A and E can be allowed to continue. Talk to me about this all the way to the very end. Talk to me a little bit about the representation that you want. In other words, a seat at the table. Are you going to get that? And if you get that seat, what are you going to say? Well, I think for your listeners, uh, Alan, uh, you will be aware that um, uh, we wrote to the minister, a colleague of mine wrote to the minister recently, and the minister's office... Uh, Private Secretary responded, and I'll just read out the... the Yeah, it's a short letter, too. Read it out, yeah. Well, I'm not going to read it all out, but I think the main part here is the Minister is acutely aware that any proposed changes to the health service can be a source of great anxiety and worry for the communities affected. And the Minister is determined that any changes to the services at Navan must be done in consultation with the local community. Now, yes, I, uh, sorry, John. John, that's just PR speak. I'd write that off myself in about five minutes, so I wouldn't. I, I, I wouldn't put that. too much weight on that letter. Well, look at you, you may not, but it's the first signal from the department or from the minister's office that is indicating that local communities have to be engaged, and we're looking at that as positively as we can. While I take your point, it may very well be only hot air. But at the end of the day, we're calling on them because 
the current committee that's in place is um, not balanced. It's not equitable. There are 17 people. Two of them are women. And they are all HSE employees. There needs to be a presence of the communities and all the different NGOs that we can bring into the frame that have all a vested interest in getting input into whatever is the outcome for Our Lady's Hospital. But should, but that should have happened when this whole exercise was getting underway a long time ago. Oh, I accept that. But the thing is, like everything else that the HSE do, they try to do it unilaterally. They don't want to uh, involve people. The consultants themselves, you, you know in the recent weeks uh, in Drogheda, have absolutely come out and made it quite clear that they are not satisfied with the capacity in Nava or in Drogheda. Drogheda yeah. And they are not going to say, uh, let this just happen without investment, without resources put into this, because that's what it's going to require. And what we're saying on that is, we want to have a voice on that, because it's not just the consultants that have concerns. All the staff in the HSE, in Our, in our Ladies' Hospital in Navan, and in the region, are all overworked. The amount of hours that be, these people have been asked to do is outrageous. OK, well, we get that and we understand it, and that argument has been made time and again. So should we not look at the possibility of ramping up this protest and taking the protest to the Department of Health, taking it to the door of the HSE in Dublin, rather than localising it? That is our next step. By the end of this month, we will be outside the HSE buildings in Dublin and we will have a presence there. And, and again, we don't have a date at this moment in time, but it will be before the end of September. And what I would be asking all the employers, all the businesses in the county, and indeed out into Louth as well, because they're equally embroiled in all of this. Their hospital is going to have a major problem of servicing in Louth if, we, if the people of Mead have to go there. So what we're saying is all the employers, all the businesses should release people on the day of our march to Dublin and get us feet on the ground because people power is going to change this. People power is going to apply the pressure. Well, no disrespect, but people power hasn't really budged the minister too far on this yet when he won't even come on here and talk to us. I don't think we could agree with you on that because this thing, as you have said earlier, is 10 years uh, and maybe even longer been debated. The Save Our Ladies Hospital campaign has prevented for 10 years the downgrading of this. So people power does work. People power will work and we need feet on the street in Dublin okay. to bring our, our, our argument and our case to the directly into the, the, the hub of where this has all been debated behind closed doors. Very good. We, we must leave. John, we must leave it there. We've run out of time. John Regan, Secretary of Meath District Council and Chair of Meath Council of Trade Unions, uh, joining us this morning. Now, just before we press on, I, I want to just make reference to, I suppose it was the biggest television audience in the history of television yesterday. I think, was it around 2 billion or was it 4 billion? 2 billion, I think it was, who um, watched the Queen's Queen Elizabeth II's funeral taking place yesterday and was quite an event and as you can imagine a lot of the papers have 
considerable reportage on it, editorials. They also have pictures uh, of the day's events. And you know something, when it comes to pomp and ceremony, there's nothing like it when it comes to the the British perspective. But I note, looking through the papers, I'm not going to comment on this, but but some of the pictures are, are quite amazing and they're incredible pictures of the entire family. But the picture that certainly paints controversy more than anything else is that of Meghan Markle. Have a look at it. Make your own mind up. I'm not saying anything. I'm not a cynic. But you make your own mind up. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Louth County Council has voted against uh, changing the local property tax rate next year, despite its chief executive warning the local authority is facing an extra €3.8 million Euro in costs in next year's budget. John Martin said that the local authority will have to consider increasing pay parking at their budget meeting in November, and officials are looking at adding €1 Euro a week to the contribution of social housing tenants. To discuss this, we're joined in the studio this morning by Kevin Callan, Independent Councillor on Louth County Council, and Paula Butterley, Fulgail Councillor on Louth County Council. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Just before we get into this conversation... I, I want to give it to people in pounds, shillings and pence what exactly we're talking about here. An increase of 15% in the local property tax would net the local authority an extra in the region of 1.4 million. The cost of this for households would have worked out at an extra 13.50 annually for 47.9% of households in Louth. That equates to 26 euro, 26 cent, sorry, 26 cent Not a day, not a month, but a week. 26 cent, okay? Moving on from that. For the next 24%, it would have meant an increase of 33.75 or 65 cent per week. Kevin, I want to go to you on this. I mean, is this the best we can do in order to fight the good fight, saving people a minuscule amount of money which will make zero difference to their household budgets? But what it will mean is that the local authorities will have to increase charges in order to make up the shortfall. It doesn't make sense. Well, Alan, the entire local property tax system at the minute doesn't make sense across Ireland. No, it Um, doesn't, but deal with this situation. This is what you're fighting for. But I am dealing with it. The issue here is, is that it is left to local authorities on an annual basis to increase taxation on local homeowners. Now, you've mentioned yourself there, 49% of households. We currently have people who are effectively not in receipt of any state aid or assistance who are continuously being taxed in this area and several other areas. It's not fair. It's not balanced. We have to pay for services, though. Alan, with respect... If you're in any other country in Europe... You're well, we're not in any other country in Europe. We're dealing with the here and now in okay. Ireland, and this okay. is what the regime okay. is. The re- it's in terms of regime, we are the smallest county in Ireland. Up until now, we've had a thing called the Equalisation Fund. So councils used to be funded from central government through general taxation. What happened then was a local property tax came in, which gave local authority members a chance to increase or decrease it. That was government washing its hands of the taxation of local services. We've had a thing called equalisation. Or it was putting power into the hands of local authorities. Well, that that could be viewed as that as well. Not at all. If you take Dublin, if you take Kildare, if you take Fingal, massive uh, tax base. Louth is nowhere near that. And we're one of six councils which last year did not increase the tax on that basis. The thing I will say, Alan, here is government had a thing called the Equalisation Fund, which was if a smaller council in a smaller county didn't hit the mark on what it had to bring in, they would get additional funding to top them up. 
that's now effectively in question if that's going to continue. But in fairness, Alan, the media have done an awful lot of research into this in the last few months in terms of the struggles people are under. And you may say it's a small amount of money, but at the minute, it's a small, it's a certain amount of people who are paying that tax. Not everybody's paying that tax. And we have a situation, it was, it was in the, the national media, 77% of people are struggling to pay their household bills, 76% are dipping into their savings, 52% are struggling with their mortgages, 39% are yeah, asking the, family hit, and friends hit for help. Hit the big ticket items, and that's what the government is going to do in the budget in order to alleviate those financial pressures. We, Alan, we will wait and see. For the people in the middle who pay their taxes, and that's what people tell me, the people who pay their taxes who ask for nothing... If you had a local property tax that covered your bins and covered your waste and covered your water and covered everything else, but it doesn't. Okay, it doesn't. Let, just just for the, the benefit of, of our listeners who are not familiar with the position you adopted on this, what, what was your position? My, what did position you want? my position was that the council would make no increase okay. to local property tax. Paula, let me bring you in there. Paula Butterly, Finnegale Councillor. What was your position? I was proposing that we'd increase it by 10%. Okay. Now, you do accept that the shortfall has to be made up, but I want to ask you about the savings per household. It's tiny. Yeah, like my proposal was, even though I realised it was going to be unsavoury as a headline 10% increase on LPT, when I drilled down into the detail, as you pointed out at the beginning of the segment, you're talking about 48% making a contribution of €9 Euros in a year. The next segment making a contribution of €22.50 Euros 50 a year, which you drill down into the $0.17 cent and into the $0.43 cent a week. Um, it is, you know, to be asking that sector always to put their hands in their pocket and to pay for something additional we have to be in good conscience aware that we offer services, Louth County Council offers services to its uh, members in the county, be it the parks, be it the playgrounds, but more importantly also they offer, uh, they offer maintenance for the social housing, the housing adaptation grants. You know, um, I in good conscience was thinking of the, the people in rural Ireland that have benefited from safety and security measures. Yeah, well, well, let me just put the same point to you then. And Joan Martin said it, that this shortfall has to be made up somewhere. So in reality, that person who's paying a minuscule amount of tax on local property tax per month could end up paying actually more if they're paying for increased parking or whatever other services the local authority are providing. So it doesn't really make sense. I think you have to start somewhere. There is potentially that shortfall. It was outlined to us. There's going to be that shortfall. That shortfall is coming from a series of costs, primarily being the energy costs and and everybody's faced with those challenges. The services have to be paid for. We're, We're looking on a shortfall in order to stand still and offer the same services that we have this year and last year. It's not an increase in services. It's in order to stand still. Okay, well then, what happens, Kevin, when you're walking down the street anywhere in the county or where the local authority takes in and you look at rubbish and you look at other problems which have arisen due to cutbacks that staff aren't available to deal with? Essentially, the problem lies with individuals like yourself who want to cut taxes in order to fund those services. I'm not in favour of cutting a tax. I was against increasing a tax. It was left at zero. There was no additional taxation put on. Yeah. I, I on know top that, but, of that, but the cost of services yeah. goes up and that, that, but that cost t- has to be met somewhere. Again, but Alan, in terms of the budget, we were discussing yesterday with the county executive issues like IT costs. Like, it was made very clear yesterday that street cleaning and essential services will be kept. We'll have to get a balanced budget, 
But we were clearly told by the chief executive, and I'm involved myself on a voluntary basis for years in that area in terms of keeping the place right and keeping Drogheda clean in particular. Chief Executive made it very clear that basic services like street cleaning and rubbish would not be impacted. Well, what would you say to Joan Martin then in relation to her saying that we will have to look at X, Y and Z in order to try and claw back the money that's being lost from local property tax? What's your solution? It's up to the Chief Executive to balance the budget. Now, with yeah, no, I, I absolutely accept that, but I mean, it's all very well coming to the table saying we want this cut, but it's no, no, if Alan, you, have, you Alan, need a solution no, no, as well. Alan, no, no, you as see, a Alan, representative, you, you no, need a solution. Absolutely, but you see, the, the issue here is, and I don't want people getting the wrong idea, I didn't call for a cut in the property tax. Just, I want to be really clear on this. Every year the decision is, stay where you are, increase or decrease. I proposed we stay where we are. So I didn't call for a decrease in anything. No, but by virtue virtue of your position, there's a hole in the finances. The principle that I would say to the Chief Executive here is, you cut your cloth to what you have. It is as simple as that. We're talking about programmes to do with improvements of uh, town centres and things like that, which are multi-million euro projects. That's the type of thing that was presented to us yesterday and the proposals there in front of myself here on the table. In terms of essential services, they will be provided. And I've been here for, for nearly 15 years. We've been through this debate many times. But Alan, the key point here is when you put the local elected councillor in a position every year, and this is central government that does this, that we have to decide to increase taxes on the people in our community that we serve. It's, it's a ridiculous situation. So what are you saying that the local authority could do better when it comes to budgeting and allocating funds for certain projects? Do you want to expand on that or perhaps yeah, point I, out where, where you see the shortcomings? Ab- absolutely. I think you have certain headings in the budget in terms of essential services, the provision of libraries, the provisions of street cleaning, the provisions which we of accept have, can't That's change. fine. But there are other ones which are going to have to be looked at in like. terms of IT, in terms of internal processes and systems, which the public don't see. But again, but administratively, they're required in order to run a very smooth operation. And that's a debate we're going to have to see when we get the budget. Well, what do you want to do? Go back to pens or pencils and no, paper? No, no, Alan. no. And to, with respect, with respect, the public pay general taxation. The council are also going to have to look at people who don't contribute to the property tax at all. Council tenants do not pay anything towards the property tax. The people who were paying it, we were going to be asked to increase that. Paula, do you, do, do you think that the, the local authority have questions to ask in relation to how they manage their budgets? I think every year that question is put to the to the county council, how they manage the budget, where they allocate the well, budget well, what's, to. What's your view of the re- their record heretofore? I, I do believe that I would tend to agree with Kevin on this, that there are areas that perhaps could be dialed back, particularly in challenging times. However, essential services, while they will continue, there are other services that are additional, like the housing adaptation, like maintenance of social housing, that we never have enough money in order to address those issues. And there's it's a situation where we should be looking for more money for those services. Indeed, when I was proposing yesterday the 10% increase, it was to ring-fence that money against, in an equitable manner, uh, so that those areas would not be affected. And I think we need to look at that. We need to be challenging that. We Like, I'm thinking of, there's a lady I know who's in her mid-50s, has suffered a devastating stroke, is lying in a bed in rehab down in Dundalk and is on a waiting list in order to get home to her own house. Now, in 2022, she won't be coming home. And in 2023, she might be coming home. So they were the things that I was thinking of. That's why I was proposing 
proposing the 10% increase and also asking for that, those funds to be ring-fenced. Well, perhaps if more of your energies were putting, put into looking or questioning the authority about the manner in which they spend the money and the projects they put it into, you would probably get a better outcome as opposed to say, saving a few pence here or there. I, I like pennies make pounds is an old cent is an old phrase that springs to mind, you know, and good housekeeping always starts with the pennies. So, you know, a few pence, you might throw it away. But at the same time, you might just say, well, you know, um, I'm, I'm throwing away the few pence here, but at the same time, I'm saving it. I'd prefer to be saving it and putting it to good to good use. Kevin, do you accept that the local property tax is necessary in order to ensure those necessary services are provided or would you be of the view get rid of it and let it be funded from central government? I would rather Alan it went back to central government the way it used to be done because we got a central government fund every year. The council have over 100 million euros. You'll be holding then to central government but, in but terms at, of but what this you point, get and how you spend it. At this point all that's happened is it's been pushed down to the local elected members to increase tax and uh, the people that they represent. So to me, no. And just, I suppose, one thing I will I will say, just on what, what Paula has mentioned there, some of the areas the council are filing challenges with are energy costs um, across the county. That's something that was presented to us yesterday. But every household's experiencing that as well. If, if you have a household where there's going to be a standing charge increase of €350 Euros before they switch a light on, the, the household is experiencing the same constraints the council well, are. Well, well, on that point, did anybody ask the local authority what they are doing in this cost of living crisis to reduce the cost that they incur from energy? Are they switching off lights? Have they made, you know, changes to work practices? Has anyone asked those questions? Yeah, well, in fairness, they actually are. Uh, the, the Minister, Eamon Ryan, was down with the Council a few weeks ago and it was made very clear that they've nearly achieved their targets. And now they're growing lettuces in flower boxes yeah. in the windowsills, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, OK, I won't comment on that. I don't <laughs> know if that's happened in like any council. But no, th- Alan, the point is households are experiencing the same constraints the Council are. The bottom line here is we've got a massive issue over in Ukraine. We've got things that we've never experienced before. There's a time to do things and there's a time to leave things as they are. I fully respect Paula and the position she took. I know where she's coming from. But at the same time, uh, we have to at some point draw a line and not... We do, but we also have to look to the future as well, to the extent that we don't know how long this is going to last. We could be in the same position this time next year, prior to the budget from the local authority that were saying, ah, lads, you know, we're going to have to reduce the tax now. I mean, we have to be forward thinking in some shape or form that, you know, when we say it's temporary, or is it temporary to your mind? Do you want it to be temporary, Paula? Like, I, as Kevin said, you know, like the preferable position would have been not to uh, increase or decrease it would have been to stand still with the LPT and not put any household under any sort of uh, financial pressure however when you weigh it uh, th- the benefit against the burden of of that increase um, I believed that it was more beneficial to actually bring in the increase and I do believe you know you said it yourself we don't know where we'll be in six months time or in eight months time and you have to try and you know guarantee and future proof okay. the services. We've got to wrap this but before I let you go uh, Paul I want to put this to you before um, what was it about two weeks ago uh, on the programme we were talking to parents of children who failed to get a place on the school bus from Anagasson to Dundalk. Any update on the situation on that? Unfortunately there's been absolutely no change in the situation despite you know. So the, have they, they haven't been able to get to school or they have to find another way? The to parents are still getting into their cars. There's a convoy heading from Anagasson, from Cullen, from Dunlear, from Dromain across the county every day. The parents were now coming into a month for a lot of those students. Um, 
they're a month now going up and down. It's causing an immense amount of stress for parents having to juggle their workloads. The students, some students are actually staying at home because they don't want to be faced with this sort of stress. Um, Parents across the county are getting together on Wednesday at one o'clock um, to protest outside the bus errand um, okay. offices in Dundalk. I hope that, you know, people see sense in this and start issuing the tickets. Um, the eligibility criteria is wrong. It needs reviewing. It is under review. But we can't be having this song and dance every year. OK, we leave it there. Paula Butterly, Fulagail Councillor and Kevin Callan, Independent Councillor. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. I will get to some of your comments around uh, Naval, Naval Hospital and for that matter around the local property tax as well before we leave you at 11 o'clock. But let's press on. People living outside the capital are less likely to have a pension. The auto-enrolment scheme for pensions might be too late. A behaviour and attitudes report found almost half of people have pushed out retirement plans or cashed in their pensions already due to the rising cost of living. 43% of people don't have a pension, with the majority saying they cannot afford it. Two in five have delayed starting a pension due to the rising cost of living. The findings are part of a BA survey commissioned to mark uh, the Pensions Awareness Week. And joining us this morning is Ralph Benson, founder of Pensions Awareness Week and moneycube.ie's head of financial advice. Morning, Ralph. Thanks for joining us. Why the anomaly, do you think, when it comes to pensions outside the capital? Morning, Alan. Yeah, good to be with you. I guess there's a, there's a few reasons for, for this, but I suppose what this research is showing us is that, um, you know, the, the cost of living crisis is um, playing out in different ways for different people. So, uh, you know, uh, if, you are, if you are out of town and, um, and, you know, facing major energy rises, for example, that's, that's having an effect on your day-to-day, but it also uh, looks like it's having a long-term effect as well in that decisions you're making today about your money are going to be paying out in five or ten years' time as well, you know? And that's going back to the age-old problem when it comes to pensions, particularly in relation to younger people. They don't, and I don't mean this in a spar- in a, uh, disparaging way, um, or disparaging way, should I say, but they don't really have necessarily the foresight, the financial foresight to understand that they will need something later in life. And they say, oh, well, that's, that's decades away. Let's not worry about that today. That, that still prevails, does it not? Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. It's it's difficult for any of us to imagine uh, what life will feel like uh, or what we'll feel like in ten or twenty years' time. And it's certainly the case that you know the the earlier you start, the easier it is to resolve these problems. But I guess at the same time, I'd say you know there's no shortage of guilt going around when we talk about pensions in Ireland. And Pensions Awareness Week is an attempt to take some of that guilt away and just put practical information into people's hands uh, so that they can actually make a difference. You know, none of this stuff gets sorted. Overnight, it's about decisions you make today, uh, you know, in a small way, uh, building up over time and benefiting your long-term financial future. Now, there are also the tax benefits of having a pension that people tend to forget about, particularly younger people as well. Perhaps you'd just give us an indication as to how that works in terms of money put in and how it's matched. Yeah, so I guess the fundamental thing around tax with pensions is that uh, you save income tax at your top rate for every every euro you put in. So if, if you pay 20% tax top rate, then you know it's going to cost you 80 cents to put one euro into your pension. If you pay 40% tax, it's going to cost you 60 cents to land uh, one euro in your pension pot. There is no other investment that will give you those kinds of returns, you know, even before the investment markets, you know, and on top of that, you uh, you'll enjoy tax-free growth, maybe some money from your employer, 
uh, and also a lump sum tax-free when you actually do hang up your boots. So mm. there's, a, there's a lot of tax tailwind to this. Um, and I would say, you know, this, this is about uh, doing what you can. We're well aware, as, as some of the, those numbers that you, you cited there on show, you know, there are lots of pressures on people. But that was one of our messages is, you know, keep it up if you can and uh, start even in a small way uh, to... to build up your long-term financial wealth as well as paying attention to the day-to-day. It can be a very difficult landscape to navigate the whole notion of pensions. What do I put it into? Do I have different assets I go to and you're relying on the expertise of a broker perhaps? But what's the best advice when it comes to pensions? Uh, Well, I would say you know, I agree with you. Uh, it can be both complicated and boring. So, as you say, using an advisor to take some of that complication and dullness away might be good. Um, but equally, the point is, you know, cash, as we know, is is a wasting asset at the moment. Inflation nine percent, yeah. and you know, while short-term investment markets can have their ups and downs, you know, there's about 150 years of data that shows investing your money in assets for growth will do more than cash. So, you know, short-term volatility should not worry most of us in our pensions, uh, you know, unless you're very close to actually drawing it down, in which case it is time to think about it. Long-term, you know, you can have a good, uh, a bad year, but uh, that shouldn't throw you off course in terms of your wider pension planning. What's your own view on people who decided to put their pension, I suppose, as it were, into fixed assets during the property boom. They decided to buy property. They're hanging on to it. And those who managed to hang on to it, well, they're probably luckier than most. But is it a good investment property in the round, do you think? I guess that my view on that, Alan, is, you know, most of us, our single biggest asset that we own is already a property on a small rainy island here. So just have, you know, it's certainly possible to make good returns on property, but just ha- look at your wider position. Are you spread across uh, investments, you know, in multiple industries, different parts of the world, all that kind of thing? So, so this isn't just about where can I get the most return. It's also how do I spread my risk? You know, it's not. Most of us uh, can remember when property was was a very unpleasant asset to hold in Ireland. You know, so this is also about spreading your risk. And it's also about being resilient and be prepared to take the ups with the downs because that's just the way it goes when you invest in the markets. No matter how diverse your portfolio is, you're going to take a hit along the road somewhere. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, you know, if I'm 20 years away from retirement and, you know, I've just had the year I've had from in the investment markets and maybe my pension has, has fallen 5 7 8%, that sounds unpleasant, but it actually it should not cause you concern. The key thing is that you're still in the market for the recovery when it comes, as it always has done uh, in investment markets. So. Now, I know you did say at the outset that, you know, try and keep up a pension, try and put as much as you can put into a pension. But in terms of the equation, what percentage of your salary should be going towards your pension? I know that will differ in terms of your age profile, but it will take somebody who's probably starting out on the career path in their mid-20s. What should they be looking at? I guess I come at this from a, from a different way, right? So, like, you know, this is about making a start, seeing the benefit begin to come through, watching the, your your investment grow, uh, and once you see that and take confidence from that, it's much more more easy to convince yourself to commit more money to this. So, I, I would say to people, if you haven't started a pension, don't get hung up on solving this in one go, and you know, uh, do what you can afford, but don't make having a perfect pension be the enemy of having a good enough pension. 
take some action today and help your future self. Ralph, can I ask you perhaps to comment on what is being proposed by the government in terms of pushing out the pension age and giving you incremental increases on the basis of when you retire? Is that a good idea, do you think? I'm talking about the state pension here now. Yeah, so, well, I guess for the government, there's a, a bit of reality creeping into to what the government you know, is planning, and they're recognising that uh, you know, we're committing a huge amount of cash to, uh, to paying people from a, you know, what is a relatively early age given life expectancies now. So you know, they have to make the sums add up. That's a good thing. Uh, I think equally, uh, you know, if you run the numbers, it's still going to be attractive for most people based on life expectancy to take that state pension age 66 rather than delay it. So um, unless that becomes significantly more attractive, I think it's not really going to change much. And most people are still going to be taking it at 66 if they can. Are you of the view that we're facing a pensions time bomb, given the fact that we see life expectancy increasing significantly? Because ultimately, someone's going to have to pay for this and pay for it for a lot longer than had been anticipated even a decade ago. Um, well, I suppose if most people hear that there's a bomb in the vicinity, they run in the other direction. You know? <laughs> I'm, in the, I'm in the business of talking about the pensions opportunity. There's a lot of tax to be saved. There's a lot of investment growth to be had. And you can make your, your later years a, a lot more comfortable by getting to grips with this. I think retirement's going to look pretty different in 10 or 20 years. You know, um, one of the things, you know, you talk about the state pension there, but, you know, a, a lot of people I know at age 66, they, they might not want to work 60 hours a week, but they certainly don't want to, uh, you know, never lift a finger again. They might want to do some voluntary work. They might want to, you know, take some part-time work or give advice to people earlier in their careers, all sorts of things, you know. So I think that is also pays and is feeding its way into people's plans around their retirement income. So I just think, you know, we're healthier at 66 than we uh, now than we were, you know, 30, 40 mm. years ago when this stuff was thought up and it's all going to look a little different in a couple of decades. Uh, just before we leave it, Ralph, I just want to ask you in relation to the input that an individual should have with their broker or with whomever's looking after their pension. They tend to, ah, well, they're looking after it, so they're doing a good job. But we really need to be engaged in the process ourselves quite regularly, not just asking how is our pension doing, but understanding where the... Uh, investments are, are they the right investments, how they're growing, which are the performing, which are the non-performing? Yeah, that's that's probably right. I I think, you know, remember that nobody cares more about your pension than you do. So act in your own self-interest. Now, Checking checking your 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 pension performance every day is a stressful thing to do yeah. because there will be ups and downs. But equally, you know, it is probably one of your bigger assets after your house and your cash savings. So, as you say, it's exactly right, Alan. You've got to you've got to mind it and don't be afraid to ask some hard questions of the people that you're paying to advise you on it. I just want to uh, throw this to you, and I don't want to uh, throw a curveball, but you should be able to give some sort of advice. Fifty-five year old don't have a pension plan in place. What are the options there? That's from John Andrahada. Yeah, well, I guess I'd say to John, like, he probably has a good working decade and more potentially ahead. There's a lot he can do to make a serious inroad into building a, a retirement fund. You know, you, you, we've talked about the state pension. I think we would all be unwise to uh, to place uh, too much store in that sorting out our retirement income, both from the amount of money it does pay and the fact that there's going to be a lot more people drawing it and a lot fewer people funding it in the future. So, you know, he can avail from some pretty significant uh, tax relief. He might have a word with his employer about um, getting a few quid into it to match that. Mm. 
And, uh, you know, it's it's not about beating yourself up about this stuff. It's about eating the elephant a little bit at a time. OK, Ralph Benson, founder of Pensions Awareness Week and Moneycube.ie's head of financial service. Thank you for joining us. Just before we take a break, a uh, couple of things I want to bring to you. Good morning, Alan. I was at a pub in Dublin City Centre. Pint of Guinness, 6.50. Pint of Rockshore Cider was 7.40. 13.90 for two pints. Regards, David. That ain't bad for Dublin City Centre, let me tell you. I was in one establishment where they were looking for nearly €9 for a pint of Heineken, so I made my excuses and left pretty hastily. Michael Reed on LMFM. Just before we move on, two quick comments in relation to some of the items we covered. First, Navin Hospital, John from Kells. Alan, we have three government ministers in me and two government senators, and if they cannot keep the emergency department open in Navin Hospital, it will be a sad day indeed. Read the local authorities and the local property tax. Patrick says, how about more accountability, less red tape and more productivity when it comes to operating local authorities. If you keep throwing money at a broken system, then the system will always remain broken. Some of your comments, we'll get to more of them just before we leave you this morning. We're joined by Garda Sharon White of RD Garda Station. Uh, morning Sharon, how are you this morning? Morning Alan, good morning, thank you. A lot to get through. Let's start off in Dulik first and a fire there in the early hours of last Wednesday. That's right. So last Wednesday, it was the 14th of September, and a fire broke out in an area of Larrick's Court in Dulic. So a vehicle was parked in the driveway of a house there in Larrick's Court, and it appears that it was set on fire. A man was seen running from the area, so we're asking residents with CCTV if they could get in touch, or anyone maybe that was in the area if they saw anything suspicious, and they can contact Dulic or Ashburn Guard Station. Now to Beliver and a burglary there. That's right. That was last Thursday morning, so the 15th of September, and it was shortly after 10am when a man called to, the house, called to a house in Beliver and he was purporting actually to be a guard. There was an elderly lady in the house and however she, belie- she didn't believe that he was a guard and she refused to let him in. But earlier in that morning, an elderly lady who was living in Rathmaline saw a suspicious male and who knocked at her door. And Gardy believe possibly the two incidents may be connected. So we're just asking uh, residents in the area to keep an eye out. If anybody calls to their door letting on to be a guard, make sure that you check them out. And if you have any information in relation to the incidents on Thursday morning, that you can call Gardy in Trim. Okay, or if move. If something happens to yourself, just call your local guard station. Okay, to Dundalk then and a hit and run there. That's right. It was uh, occurred last Friday week. That was the 9th of September and it was on Anne Street in Dundalk. This happened at about 6.15pm and it was a white Audi car was hit by a blue minibus. The Guardian Dundalk, they're looking for CCTV or information in relation to the blue minibus. Okay, to Ashburn then and there was a vehicle stolen there Sunday morning last? That's right. It's an unusual one actually that the listeners may be able to help with. On Sunday morning past, at 2.30am, a jeep was taken from Ballymurphy in Dunshockland. It was a left-hand drive, blue Range Rover, and it has a foreign registration plate. The vehicle, it would be very noticeable if you came across it being left-hand drive in the bright blue colour. So the question is, did you see the vehicle during the night, that was the Sunday night into the Monday morning, or possibly have you seen it since? So the Gardaí and Ashburn are investigating this crime. And the next one, uh, I've certainly heard this one on the news. This is in relation to a missing person in Drogheda. That's right, yeah. I think you have covered it uh, on LMFM there already. But Darren Greenfield was reported missing on the 11th of September, having last been seen in the Mel area of Drogheda. He is described as 5 foot 5 tall with a stocky build. His brown hair is shaven and he has blue eyes. 
although Darren is from Roscommon, he had been staying with family in Drogheda. So if you have any information on Darren Greenfield's whereabouts, we'd ask you to contact Drogheda Gardaí. Now, a robbery at Paddy Powers in Ratoth next. Yes, detectives in Ashburn are investigating this robbery which took place in Paddy Powers in Ratoth on Saturday, just after 1.30pm. A man in a grey hoodie with a blue mask over his face entered the shop and he was carrying a weapon and demanded money from the counter. Thankfully, no one was injured, but the suspect is described as being six foot tall. He's a slim build and he was wearing a tracksuit. If you happen to see this man or you were in the area, please contact detectives in, Dr- in Ashburn. Okay, and to a vacant house fire then in RD. That's right. Uh, RD Gardaí are investigating the fire which happened in a vacant house in Mullinstown in RD. And it was a little while back, so it was on a Friday night heading into a Saturday on the 20th of August. Gardy, uh, having examined the scene of the fire, believe it maybe has been set alight deliberately. So if you saw anyone hanging around the area or you notice something suspicious in Mullinstown, RD, on the 19th or 20th of August, please contact RD here in RD. And finally, the Great Dublin Bike Ride. And it's a, a nice event just to tell you about and warn the listeners that Guardian Mead would like to tell you that it's happening next Sunday, the 25th of September. The Great Dublin Bike Run, and it's an amateur event with up to a thousand cyclists, which and it'll travel throughout the country on Sunday, uh, throughout the county on Sunday. The event will commence at 8 a.m. in Dublin, but it will travel then through Bellewstown, Dulic, Curtis Cross, onto the N2, and then it will continue on to Kenstown Village, Village, Screen, Rattoth, and Kilbride. Now, there will be Gardaí and stewards at many points along the way, but please note that the participants, they're not professionals. They're participating in a family fun cycle and the cyclists will be scattered uh, and they'll be ongoing throughout the day. So just please bear this in mind if you're travelling or if you're under any time constraints next Sunday. Very good. We leave it there. Garda Sharon White of RD Garda Station. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, let's get to some of your comments because there were quite a few, particularly in relation to the hospital and uh, for that matter as well, mental health. And I deal with this one in relation to Navin Hospital. First, an email from Margaret. Hi, Alan. Just listening to your last speaker on the NE closure at Navin Hospital. They did it in Dundalk and I had the misfortune to re- present in Drogheda recently. The long wait aside, when I finally got through the double white doors. Not only was it overcrowded, but two ladies arrived, both of whom were in full-blown labour. They were put into chairs in the corridor in front of the paediatric unit, which is a glass front. Children in there in full view of what was going on. Privacy, dignity, non-existent. This is where we're at, at this in this country. It's deplorable. HSC and the politicians with responsibility for our health care and safety. God help us. Mick from Fingal, property tax, in my opinion, should be means tested. Widows, pensioners and the unemployed shouldn't have to be levied with the same property tax as high earners. In relation to mental health services, Anne fully agrees with Roisin Clark that we are heading into a mental health crisis in the coming months. As people's worry about as people worry about financial services, the burdens they're facing of the winter months, and the continuing growing uncertainty around what will happen, she doesn't believe that the government have any real conception of just how worried people are about rising energy costs and if they'll be able to afford to heat their homes this particular winter. Now, on that particular subject, we did mention it yesterday, but I want to mention it to you again that this coming Friday. 
we have a special programme. It'll be over the course of two hours. We will have government representation here in studio, whether it be live in studio or on the telephone line, who will be fielding questions in relation to issues that people are facing facing as a result of the cost of living crisis that can be around you know the cost of energy are they able to put food on the table what they're feeling what services they require what support they're getting and if there's any sense of confidence that they are getting from the government around what will be presented in budget 2023 so we're asking you particularly households, all households, whether you have children or not, whether you're employed or unemployed, we want to hear the difficulties that you're facing on a daily basis, what sacrifices that you have had to make over the past number of months and the fear and anxiety that you are gripped with as the uncertainty will persist over the coming months. We want to hear the real stories, we want to hear what's happening on the ground and hopefully we'll be in a position where government representatives will be able to bring some form of silence or some form of confidence back into your your life when it comes to the future and what you will be facing. So we want to hear from you by email. It's michael at lmfm.ie. michael at lmfm.ie. Send your emails in. Send your questions in. You know, if you want to come on air and talk to us about your situation, we'd be more than happy to facilitate that for you this coming Friday. So it's happening on Friday, quarter past nine, on the Michael Reed Show with myself, Alan Cantor. Time's against us. We leave it there. We're back with you same time tomorrow, a little bit after nine. Until then, for me, Alan Cantor, good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.